0: you can't go. All
1: the plants are going to die. I'm going to take a bath. Bad dates.
0: I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the Moors.
1: It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No!
2: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen, and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
3: I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells.
2: And today we're discussing Wolfen, released July 24th, 1981. It was written by David Eyer and Michael Wadley, based on a novel by Whitley Stryber, and uncredited work from Eric Roth, directed by Wadley, And uncredited work from John D. Hancock and released by Warner Brothers with uncredited... No, there's it's just the studio. You can't can't not credit the studio for distribution. In 1978, Whitley Stryber's first novel, The Wolfin, was published. Producers Alan King and Rupert Hitzig optioned the novel immediately and secured a development deal at Orion Pictures. King, of course, played the lead in our first title, Just Tell Me What You Want, the first wide release of 1980. The word wolfen is an old Dutch word used to describe Indians and wolves together. They were like the animals outside of their civilization. They referred to them as wolfen.
1: So casually racist?
2: Yes, uh, but I I also think this is hundreds of years ago. This isn't like they don't do that today. (laughs) Wolfen arrived early in a long string of 80s werewolf titles preceded only by Joe Dante's The Howling, but in 1981 alone followed by by An American Werewolf in London, and Full Moon High.
3: I wouldn't call this a werewolf movie, though.
2: Well, agree to disagree. Okay.
1: We'll get into it, I guess. Yeah.
2: And later, by several howling sequels, a pair of Teen Wolf movies, and The Company of Wolves, among others. Early in pre-production, director Michael Wadley and co-screenwriter David Ayer set to work designing a special process for the film's distinctive POV vision, referred to in the script as alien vision.
1: See, and I and I was so proud that I coined Wolfen Vision.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Wolfcam. An adapted steady cam was attached to a computerized crane to give the shots the widest range of motion without sacrificing smoothness. Wolfen was the first feature to utilize thermographic photography, popularized six years later by John McTiernan's Predator. Though a similar process was used for a short scene in Ghostbusters, while Egon experiments on the possessed Louis Tully. Dustin Hoffman was very interested in playing Dewey Wilson, and while he campaigned for the part, United Artists was prepared to distribute, but director Wadley was an enormous fan of Albert Finney's and turned Hoffman down. Keep in mind, this would have been his first project after his Oscar-winning turn in Kramer vs. Kramer.
1: Seems like an odd want for Dustin Hoffman.
2: Yeah, but he also was trying to be Popeye last year and then eventually decided against it, so yeah. weird choices from him. Reportedly, the part of Dewey Wilson is the only role Hoffman has ever been rejected for in his entire career. I'm assuming that's after a certain point. Right. Because I feel like <laughs> you have to get rejected at some point.
3: Never. never. I think so,
1: he so. was rejected as a tomato.
2: As a tomato.
1: I don't get it. Oh, it's a tootsie, tootsie joke. Nobody in Hollywood wants to work with you either.
0: I can't even send you up for a commercial. You played a tomato for 30 seconds. They want a half a day over schedule because you wouldn't sit down yes it wasn't logical you were a tomato a tomato doesn't have logic a tomato can't move that's what i said so if he can't move how's he gonna sit down george
2: having read the book though finney fits the character much better since he's supposed to be more attracted to neff than she is to him and he is described in the novel as a squat refrigerator shaped man and that's finney not hoffman (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a great description of a person
1: (laughs) a refrigerator shaped man
2: Because the production insisted on actual wolves, which cannot be trained for their on-location New York shoots, they were also forced to employ sharpshooters in case the wolves (laughs) escaped the enclosed area for shooting.
3: Oh my god.
2: Originally intended as a 1980 release, the film was delayed due to a series of problems. Michael Wadley sparred with producers over rights allegedly guaranteed to him by the DGA after Orion tried to shut him out of the post-production process. Wadley believed he was contractually entitled to a test screening of his own cut of the film, but the DGA arbitrator disagreed. Wadley's original cut of the film was a whopping four and a half hours long, and he was not prepared to trim it at all. At the time, the effects for the alien vision footage was unwatchable and needed to be reprocessed by a new VFX team. Wadley reluctantly cut almost two hours from the film's runtime, but it wasn't enough for Orion. I
3: can't even imagine what you would put in a four-hour cut of this. We'll
2: talk about some of the stuff, but... Not enough to make up two hours of missing footage. I
3: honestly thought it was a little long as it was.
2: Yeah. Wadley was fired by the studio, immediately following principal photography, for going over time and over budget, but claimed that a specific budget had never been clearly communicated to him. Evidently, those two hours included an introduction in the 17th century to establish the long history of the Wolfen legend. I'm
3: going to stand by the idea that n- no director or producer ever in the history of any movie ever made was not given a budget. Yeah. Like ever, it's just not it's just not possible. Nobody will never not give you a budget. <laughs> yeah.
2: It, but I can imagine someone like, "Oh, they forgot to mention the budget in that meeting. That means I could spend infinity dollars." Yeah. We heard a similar situation with the production of Death Hunt early this yeah, season, it's... but in that case, Raymond Chow and Albert Ruddy were successful in removing Robert Aldrich as the director and replacing him with Peter Hunt. In the case of Wolfen, producer Rupert Hitzig managed to helm some second unit work himself, but director John D. Hancock was brought on for significant reshoots.
1: So they had to do reshoots?
2: Yeah, because they- After
1: trimming four hours, they- Yes, because after... <laughs> you, you have to attach <laughs> you have to the shots to each other. Yeah, uh, that's funny. Jesus. I don't
2: know
3: it's 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 like willful ignorance though like you, you're just purposefully for sure not going to to ask so that you just get to do whatever you want but like that's a recipe for
2: never disaster. working again yeah <laughs> which this guy didn't really
1: well and and how long was the script long i i don't i i wouldn't even have gotten that far with a script that long
2: yeah because of dga intervention wadley retains his screen credit though he has made his disappointment with the final product known because so many of his other storylines were cut. Alongside all of these problems, an actor strike caused further production delays, pushing the film an additional month to its final release date, July 24th, 1981. Wolfen would be the last film released theatrically in Megasound, which, as we discussed in our Outland review, was developed to enhance the theatrical experience by blasting low-frequency vibrations through the theater to coincide with thuds, crashes, and explosions on screen, but which, in some cases, had caused actual structural damage to the theater. Despite decent reviews, Wolfen grossed a mere $10.6 million on a budget of 17 landing it in Rolling Stone's Big Bucks Big Losers list for the year. Earlier this season, we mentioned a double feature of Blowout and Zorro the Gay Blade on a marquee in the recent Joker film. This film, released the same day, also appears in Joker in the form of a poster in the background. We open with a pan across the New York skyline that settles on the Brooklyn Bridge. As we move in closer, we see Edward James Olmos as Native American Eddie Holt swinging a roarer in a circle over his head. We get aerial footage of the South Bronx completely demolished. There's one building per square block and the rest is just piles of rubble. We've seen the same neighborhood photographed earlier in Night of the Juggler. We hear the echoing countdown of another eminent demolition and we see a building collapse. The neighborhood was compared at the time to London in the wake of the Blitz, which we just saw recently in Eye of the Needle.
3: It was funny when when I was watching this, I was like, oh, this does look just like Night of the Juggler. And I was like, why was there an entire section of, you know, of, the bronx that's just a pile of rubble the vanderveers
2: so, you got to blame the vanderveers
3: well it was fascinating i just started i just started reading articles about it and i'm like this whole like section of the city just burned to the ground yeah you know and they stopped they stopped like putting out the fires and just let these buildings burn to the ground because it was just live the, the these poorest people conditions, in the town yeah and they wanted them out
2: mm-hmm in center frame of this demolished city block, we see a burnt down church, which was built and burnt down for the production.
3: Oh, the church was... <laughs> it, they yeah, they built it built for it. the film. Well, I thought that I, I thought it was a really lucky find if they had scouted a burnt yeah. down a church like that. I'm like, yeah. this is perfect, but we, also terrifying to film in. Right, exactly.
2: <laughs> it, that would definitely be a crazy insurance situation. We flash into a non-human POV looking up through the open ceiling of the church at helicopters passing overhead, and the colors are all distorted. Outside the church, the same POV watches as men in three-piece suits perform a groundbreaking ceremony across the street. The man holding the shovel and kicking off the ceremony is Mr. Chris Vanderveer, and he is applauded. That night, we see Vanderveer and his wife Pauline in the back of a limousine. He asks his driver to take them to Battery Park on the way to their penthouse. In the front seat of the limousine, the driver has multiple monitors bearing the logo of ESS, which stands for Executive Surveillance Systems. The driver contacts ESS by radio to request a new route for his client, and a whole team of specialists in a control room put together a safe route to relay back to the driver. Mrs. Vanderveer takes a quick snort of coke and rolls down her window. As the limousine crosses a bridge, we see as Eddie Holt again, silhouetted in the headlights, running across the street. He climbs the framework of the bridge and throws a glass bottle at the side of the limousine as it passes. The Vanderveers are startled, but continue on, exiting the vehicle in Battery Park to approach a series of shimmering wind chimes. Their dog, a white Borzoi, wanders around the park with them and seems upset by something.
3: You could could call it a Russian wolfhound if you don't want to say Borzoi.
2: I'm going to do that. Or maybe I won't. Who knows? We'll find out.
3: You can put both these in here.
2: (laughs) They stop to read a plaque. A replica of the first windmill in America, a Dutch horizontal mill erected on this site in 1625 by Peter Vanderveer, who I think we would have seen in that four and a half hour version of the movie.
3: Erecting a, a windmill. <laughs>
2: yeah, the ancestor specifically probably building a windmill that looked like this. Oh, okay. The camera tilts up the windmill replica, which has canvas sails and rotates clockwise on an axle. Chris Vanderveer disappears behind it, and his wife starts to call for him.
3: The wind the the wind chimes that are around this thing are really cool though. Yeah. yeah. They cuz they're not um hanging like the like you would think of wind chimes like uh you know dangling from some structure. They they're like little rods that are coming up from the ground that are grouped together. So when the wind blows these really long, you know, tenuous rods together, they're they're making chiming sounds. They're they're really awesome.
2: Yeah, they almost look like they're sprouting up out of the ground. Yeah.
3: And, and uh you know not just the wind but I think uh the woman uh
2: Pauline is sort of pa- Pauline like yeah runs her hand yeah. through
3: him and it makes just great sound
2: Chris Vanderbeer disappears behind the windmill and his wife starts to call for him Chris's driver slash bodyguard seems worried by his sudden disappearance until Chris lunges out of the replica somehow perfectly emulating a wolf snarl <laughs> We see a bright full moon, but then it is suddenly discolored again, and we are in that alien POV. It looks like the colors are reversed, negative to positive, but only some of them somehow. It's not a straight negative image, but the sky is still black, so maybe this is day for night also? The POV circles the park, and the Russian Wolfhound makes a run for it. The bodyguard walks over a grate, and the POV watches him from underneath. He recognizes too late that he's being watched, and he goes for his gun, but before he can get a shot off, he's hit by a second creature from the side, who seems to bite his arm completely off at the wrist.
0: And that's when the attack comes, not from the front, but from the side.
2: (laughs) With the bodyguard incapacitated and probably dead, the POV turns to hunt Vanderveer. Chris and Pauline are very quickly dispatched, spilling blood and pearls at the foot of the windmill. It's a very Martha Wayne image to see bloody pearls tumbling to the ground in New York at night, and for a brief moment I thought that maybe their dog was going to become (laughs) Bat-Dog. As we end the scene, we get one last shot of the bodyguard's severed hand holding the gun and the muscles slowly loosen, causing it to appear alive. We cut to the apartment of Dewey Wilson, as played by Albert Finney. He wakes in the dark and we see him jogging along a sidewalk for a bit before picking up groceries at a local liquor store. He gets a page and calls a number from a payphone. It's the chief, or I think it's the chief. I don't think they ever say this guy's title officially. Yeah. He's, but I think it's he's he's, the chief. Yeah, he's, he's in charge of something. Yeah. Yeah. Wilson is ordered to the scene of a bizarre triple homicide, and we cut right to it. The deceased was a famous billionaire from the Vanderveer family.
0: Heir to the fortune, maybe even the presidency. <laughs> so much for
2: Do you guys recall the last time we saw a potential president killed?
3: We just had it. Yeah. Um... It blowout. was blowout. Blowout. Yeah.
0: That stiff on the stretcher was probably our next president. Hell, he had my vote.
2: For some reason, Wilson brings all his groceries to the crime scene instead of stopping by his place first. He's even shopping on powdered donuts as he walks up. How can you eat that crap? They said it was my stomach. The bodies still had their jewelry, so it wasn't a mugging, and no signs of a struggle, so it wasn't a kidnapping gone wrong. It seems this is Dewey's first case in a while after some sort of forced leave.
0: Does this mean I'm back on the job? You're a detective, aren't you?
2: Suddenly the police commissioner and the mayor show up together. They have to make an appearance on account of the celebrity victim. Medical examiner Whittington, played by Gregory Hines, appears on the scene. The mayor is also being advised by a man we saw last night in the ESS control room. He tells the mayor that this could stem from an international conspiracy.
3: What is ESS?
2: Executive security systems.
3: Executive security. Is that, this is something they've made up for the movie? Yes. Okay. It was, it's a <laughs>
2: private company that provides excessive security to important political figures and ah. billionaires around the world. The ESS guy judgmentally recognizes Dewey Wilson, and the chief is quick to come to his defense.
0: Dewey Wilson? Homicide, kidnapping, and results. I'm sorry, I don't know you.
2: His name is Jonathan Ross, and he's the bureau chief at ESS. The commissioner explains that ESS has incredible security resources that the police don't have. That's why he's been invited on this investigation. But this park littered with disembodied limbs isn't a ringing endorsement of their services. As Dewey explores the park, the camera floats to the tunnel under the grates to reveal more ESS agents searching for clues. Not police, mind you, a private security team operating on behalf of a dead client. Dewey meets up with Whittington, who gives him a look at the body. The brain is missing. He also sees the bodyguard's hand in a baggie and inspects the emblem on the hand's ring.
0: of and, and a goat. Voodoo.
2: The sails of the windmill replica are still splattered with Pauline's blood. Her neck was slashed so deep that her head was nearly severed.
3: We don't come back to that voodoo line. At we all.
2: do a little tiny, tiny, tiny. Maybe
3: there's more in what was cut out, but like, I kind of expected that concept to come back.
2: Yeah. Whittington shares a fun little story about decapitations
0: during the French Revolution. When they chop the heads off, they quick pick them up out of the basket and look them in the face. The most went out right away in shock. Every fifth head or so was alive, wide awake, eyes blinking, mouth trying to say something.
2: Whittington gestures to a pair of cops that they can collect Pauline's body and offers a warning. Just a moment too late.
1: Be careful with her. Oh shit. Heads.
2: You pick
0: it up. I'm not picking it up. Jesus Christ.
2: Dewey notices a pearl on the ground, and we cut to the morgue, where Reginald Vell Johnson is talking to a body, and then chastising it for getting shot twice in the head.
1: Yeah, I was I was listening to the voice, and it's like, I know that voice. Yeah. <laughs> See? You shouldn't have been fucking with that bitch!
2: Dewey stops by to chat with Vell Johnson on his way to Whittington dewey is still in the jogging outfit that he's been wearing since the start of the film and he's still carrying around his groceries and still eating them even in this room full of bodies
3: yeah it was really disturbing like i don't think i would want to eat around here
2: well this whole
1: this whole sequence is really disturbing because well they're discussing like the lack of humanity that this killer had they're also displaying an extreme lack of humanity for these people who have died right. the the more guy slaps the dead body like, yeah. so you shouldn't like have been messed with it it's stupid him. of you to get shot in yeah. the head um they drag a, a woman off and her just fingernails are like grinding into the metal as you're yeah. being yeah. dragged off and they're just flopping things around it's like it's really upsetting about like who's the real monster yeah. here
3: probably still the guys that killed them originally. Yeah, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> 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 just just making sure <laughs>
2: When a morgue attendant tries to move a body, we see an insert of its hand gripping the table tight as if to hold on, and then its fingernails dragged across the glass surface. I almost thought that they were trying to imply, like, these people are coming back from the dead, almost, because it looks like the person has a grip on the table as they're being dragged away. Whittington flips on a backlight for a series of x-rays and shows Dewey that there was no trace of metal in the wounds, so they're not sure how these body parts were severed. Next, Dewey goes to visit with the chief, and we learn a little bit more about what preceded the night's murders. The Vanderveers were having a big party with a hundred friends and returned to their penthouse around 5 a.m. Dewey has determined that the driver bodyguard was Haitian, and another detective confirms that he was excessively qualified.
0: Ex-Papadoc secret police, Tonton Macou.
2: Papa Papadoc being a reference to Francois Duvalier, the former president of Haiti, who assembled a hit squad called the Tauntaun Makut to dispose of any political rivals. They were so good at their work that people were scared to criticize Duvalier even in private, assuming he was using voodoo magic to surveil them. Mm. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone kill a Tauntaun?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Richard, what do you think?
2: Uh, I I know. <laughs> what is it?
1: Uh, Empire Strikes Back? That's right! <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah i mean okay i was gonna say like no it died from exhaustion but no the wampa killed killed the other one
2: right so So someone killed it it just wasn't luke they start to explore potentially political enemies of the vanderveers unfortunately being a billionaire involves a lot of international business
0: the family's got interest on every continent funding a government overthrow putting a mine in some holy ground moving a town real friend of the third world Uh, international terrorism huh
2: I wanted him to point to Antarctica and be like, penguin rape? It's like, what? (laughs) Is that a business? We cut to the control room of ESS just as Jonathan Ross arrives for work. Scrolling through a lot of tapes from their archive, they find footage of Vanderveer's niece and Ross demands she be brought in for questioning. Another monitor shows a different woman's face and text over the picture reads, Rebecca Neff, born Boston, Mass, August 15th, 1953, divorced, psychologist, Wesley A.B., Georgetown PhD, Consultants NYPD, Expert Motivation, Terrorist Behavior. In the book, Neff is simply another detective working the case with Dewey. She's not divorced either, and her husband is a corrupt vice detective. The freeze frame of Rebecca's face unpauses and she lectures a crowd on the dangers of billionaire kidnappings around the globe. Ross demands she be brought in and put on this case apparently this company is like in charge of the nypd now because they can make demands like call the police and tell them to bring this girl in for questioning and have this person brought in and assigned to this investigation we cut right to rebecca neff meeting with warren he assigns her as a partner to dewey
0: i didn't know he was back i thought he retired disabled mental he had a lot of family problems he started to drink a little too much he uh police work piled up on him he's a good man you'll like him
2: the chief mentions that Vanderveer's niece is being held for questioning, and that she's connected to the Weather Underground, which we've discussed earlier in films like Night Hawks, The Kidnapping of the President, and Small Circle of Friends. Warren invites Neff to test her new machine on the niece. We cut right to Dewey and Neff at a hot dog stand, and he asks what kind of terrible things the international gang leaders are doing to each other now. She spouts a few off the top of her head, and ends with the Uno mondo who cut off their enemy's genitals.
0: The cock and balls, they stuffed them in their victim's mouth.
2: Just as Dewey pushes a hot dog into his face. He shows her some of the crime scene photos and asks if anyone on the global stage is collecting the brains of their enemies. We cut to the ESS control room where the niece, Renee, is being interviewed, but the monitor is showing a thermal heat map of her face. The purpose of this thermal camera is apparently to detect if she is lying, and she seems to think it would be illegal to use a lie detector on her, but I think it would only be inadmissible in court, which does beg the question, why are we doing this? Dewey is fascinated by the technology and suggests we should be using it on politicians. When Neff asks Renee about her potential involvement in the murder of Chris and Pauline Vanderveer, her response shocks Warren, even though she's clearly lying.
3: It wasn't a murder, Rebecca. It wasn't a murder,
0: Rebecca. It was an execution. Jesus Christ. It was an execution. It wasn't a murder, Rebecca. It was an execution. No, she's lying, she knows nothing about the murders.
2: She was just hoping to get some street cred for claiming responsibility for killing her billionaire uncle. We hard cut to the alien POV again. We're in the South Bronx and a man is trying to buy drugs with a necklace. After a successful purchase, we follow the customer into the demolished interior of a large brick building. The alien POV floats over the rubble and watches the man from a distance. The man is too high to spot his predator but senses danger. The man is swiftly attacked from the front and back simultaneously. His throat is instantly slashed open, and he is quickly dragged in the alien POV back to the shadows of the demolished building.
1: But see, this this is a bad move because if he is high on drugs eating him
2: would get them high yeah maybe that's why they did it i want a taste of that
1: see at this point i'd never seen this movie I, i'm sure say yeah yeah, yeah, I yeah. Hadn't. um i thought that this was going to be a straight up werewolf movie yeah. yeah and and i'm thinking oh okay so so far these these werewolves have been kind of careful and methodical but i i was for sure thinking like okay so now they've eaten a drug addict who strung out and now he this wolf is gonna like go off on a crazy drug-induced rampage and kind of like and kind of like bring everything out into the open nah didn't happen i was so excited (laughs) for it though
2: yeah a bloody chunk of something is tossed aside as the monster feeds on his body so maybe this is something to do with the drugs that he was taking that night Neff strolls into dewey's office and is disappointed by the lack of pornography taped to the walls he tells her flat out that he doubts this case involves terrorism in any way he points out how strange it is that no one's taking credit for the kill aside from the niece today The whole point of a high-profile murder is to send a message. Even knowing how the rest of the film goes, I also think it's weird that no organization has claimed responsibility just for the chance to broadcast some demands on a very public stage. Dewey offers to pour her a shot and she accepts. She asks why he decided to be a cop. I like to kill.
0: It's a habit I picked up and it's uh, it's, it's hard to shake. Mm. Killed anyone lately? Well, I tried to kill a rabbit this morning, but it went down a hole. Mm. What do you make of that? Well, something sexual, I suppose.
3: I don't get
2: it. I don't either.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I guess this is supposed to be them flirting.
2: Yeah, the beginning hints of a flirtation. Oh. She stands to leave, and he offers her a ride home, but she refuses this time. Back in the alien POV, we see another building being demolished with a wrecking ball and tractors. As they clear the debris, they find the remains of the guy who bought drugs in the previous scene. The alien POV scampers away to the burnt-down church for cover. Dewey and Neff head together to the Vanderveer building. Dewey gets a page while exploring Chris Vanderveer's office and calls out on the desk phone. While the phone is still ringing, Dewey asks Vanderveer's assistant what this architecture model is in the center of the room
0: mr Vanderveer's real estate project groundbreaking ceremony was saturday
2: there's a weird adr over the day of the week that he says oh yeah, and I it kind of makes
1: that. it kind of makes me wonder what he said originally that they had to dub over
2: well apparently a lot of john d hancock's work on the film was adr fixes for various details so. okay
3: because when you cut a bunch of other stuff out of the movie you, you have, have to fix with yeah, adr yeah yeah, yeah.
2: The page was from Whittington, who informs Dewey about the body in South Bronx. He instructs him to meet him at Baldy's. We cut right to Baldy's, and Baldy seems to be an affectionate nickname for the station's CSI, played by James Tolkien, who is not yet 50 but already fully bald.
0: Jesus, didn't that guy ever have hair?
2: <laughs> Baldy informs Dewey that he has located identical hairs on two victims, the body from the South Bronx and Pauline Vanderveer. What are they?
0: Captain, they don't match anything I have. All I know is they ain't human.
2: As they leave his office, they take parting shots at his being follically challenged.
0: Thanks, Baldy. Thank you. Keep coming it. Yeah.
2: We cut to the South Bronx, where Dewey and Neff pull up and park. They walk toward the burnt down church. The alien POV watches them walk around the building, while another POV in the yard spies on them from closer. They hesitate to enter the church until Neff hears what sounds like a baby.
0: What was that? What? That sound. Like a baby. There. Inside.
2: This is actually a hunting tactic of some wolves to mimic the sound of younglings. Neff hears the sound again and is lured to a stairwell in the back. I would definitely not test my weight on the wooden stairs of a burnt down church, but Neff has more balls than me.
3: Yeah, this made me so nervous. Like, the, the idea of going up this, the, this like, the, all the wood in this place is blackened. Right. So it's not like this area is untouched by the fire.
2: Yeah, it's, it's amazing these walls haven't fallen in on you, let well, alone half the stairs. the walls
3: are falling in on yeah. right. this place. Right, yeah.
2: A breeze blows shut the double doors of the church, and Dewey starts to sense something is amiss. Suddenly, the score goes haywire, and Dewey bolts after Neff. He catches her halfway up the spiral staircase, and yanks her backward, falling down an entire flight of steps himself. He seems convinced that what she heard was not a baby, and they both run full speed across the yard back to the car.
3: But they, like, okay, he, she, she goes up, and he goes after her, and then he grabs her.
2: And just yanks her down.
3: Yeah, And then they both start running, like, full tilt. Like, right. no explanation or anything. Like, he's booking it, and she's following him. And I, But I feel like I would have stopped and been like... What the fuck? I I heard a baby. Like, what I are you doing? I think there's shots
2: missing here. There has to be.
3: Yeah, because it seems like they saw something. Like, because otherwise, right. Why are you running full tilt out of this place?
2: And she's on board with him when she was just trying to get a baby, yeah. and he never said anything. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. In the novel, he explains that he could hear predators closing in on him, and that the sounds that she heard were luring her away so that he would be defenseless.
1: Well, now lure her away so that she would be
2: defenseless. But she's young and has a gun and and he's like an old sloppy dude mm. that and that's oh, sexist richard right <laughs> and in the movie <laughs> you saw the movie
1: <laughs> they both had guns
2: yeah but one was an old sloppy drunk guy <laughs> and one was a young fit police officer woman i know which one i would attack
3: the baby the baby
2: <laughs> someone best shot A pair of eyes glow in the shadows at the top of the stairs and something growls silently. A monster's POV flies down the spiral staircase and tracks their tire treads into the city. We cut to a bar where Neff and Dewey sit down at a table. They try to decide what they heard earlier and Dewey blames kids or junkies. Is that why you ran so fast? Do you think there were kids up there?
3: Maybe it was because they growled silently?
2: Yeah. In the background, (laughs) we can hear Tom Waits singing. In some cuts of the film, he is seen as the bartender of this joint actually singing in the scene, but possibly due to music rights, he was cut from the final version of the film. Oh, really? you take two hours out, you're going to take that out? Why? Neff asks Dewey more seriously this time if he's ever killed anyone, and he admits to wounding a rookie in the leg by mistake while cleaning his gun his second week in uniform. She seems skeptical. Have you? Well, why don't you ask how many? We cut back to the alien POV crossing Brooklyn Bridge, when the monster encounters workers halfway across, it knocks one of them off the side of the bridge before continuing into the city. And it looks like it knocks him, like, feet into the air.
1: And I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that it chose to walk at street level, which would have been, you know, a more noticeable... Unless the bridge was completely closed, because I was like, why aren't there cars or people, like...
2: Well, I think it was on the walkway, which goes above the carway
1: right but but the fact that there was absolutely no people
2: yeah that is weird
1: um i i figured it would run up the the um you know the the suspension support cables
2: well that's there's people up there too though (laughs) the pov follows the smell to a hiding place under a stoop and we cut back to dewey dropping off neff at her apartment someone watches through an outside window as neff walks to her bedroom and lays across the bed the picture is not distorted so i can only assume this is dewey we cut back to Battery Park, where a sudden breeze jingles all the wind chimes again. Neff hears a scratching at her window and moves to investigate. She grabs a gun out of her purse before busting out onto her balcony, where she's surprised by her own cat. I want to just shoot her? this cat off the balcony.
3: I thought it was weird because, like, I wouldn't keep... I wouldn't have a cat that's outdoors, I think, in New York. So is this her cat or is just a random cat? Because it's outside.
2: I don't know if she keeps it.
1: Well, she, she was, like, taking care of a cat moments earlier inside. As yeah. I was like, how so did the like cat you get back outside? the door and outside? it went
2: outside and then jumped up at you? Maybe. We cut to Neff and Dewey at the Natural History Museum trying to determine what left the hairs at both murder scenes. Is it still murder if an animal did it? I don't know the rules.
3: No, because murder is, like...
2: Only people can murder? I think so. Ape does not kill ape.
3: <laughs> has to be an intentional killing, Right,
1: right. I mean, I guess it's still a murder scene until until you prove that it was an animal attack. Yeah.
2: The animal expert Ferguson, played by Tom Noonan, suggests that they're dealing with a cat or a bear if they found actual hair samples. When he looks at the hair under a microscope, Ferguson determines that they belong to canis lupus, which is the Latin word for a wolf. He brings out a taxidermied wolf to illustrate. Dewey seems to blame a wolf for the killings, but Ferguson suspects something incredibly more likely.
0: What, a hitman in a fur coat?
2: I would definitely assume that if these hairs were found on opposite ends of the city and came from the same animal, that a human must have worn that animal's fur from one place to another. It wouldn't make sense to me that a wolf could cross the city unnoticed like that. But I guess it was noticed, it was just cleaning up after itself along the way. Dewey tosses Ferguson the crime scene photos without any kind of a warning, and the man seems insistent that an animal didn't cause these wounds. He warned Neff before he showed her the pictures, but not this civilian, he just frisbee him in this guy's lap.
1: Yeah, but I think that they have some kind of history because Whittington will ref- kind of like talk to him about him. It's like, you know, like he'll say like later, it's like, oh, Fergus weird, but he's not that weird. Yeah. Like, like they have some, they probably consulted with him on cases before. Yeah. Um,
2: Spoiler alert. He's really weird. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but I also feel like at least later that he's covering.
2: Yeah. Ferguson takes it a step further to point out that wolves don't actually attack humans because they're too smart. In many ways, they're like Native Americans.
0: Wolves and Indians evolved and were destroyed simultaneously. Their societies are practically one and the same. They're tribal. They, they look out for their own. They don't
2: overpopulate. And they're superb hunters. But wolves do attack humans. There's plenty of recorded instances of wolves attacking humans. I looked it up. <laughs> Dewey begins pursuing the terrorist angle again and calls out NAM, the acronym for the Native American Movement, and now it's Neff's turn to doubt someone's involvement. Dewey casts suspicion in the direction of one man in particular, Eddie Holt, played by Edward James Olmos earlier. He was a violent Native American rights activist in the 70s who, together with friends, blew up Federal Hall. $24 deed was in there. I like this joke, but Dewey doesn't even react to it. It's a reference to the legend, perhaps apocryphal, that the island of Manhattan was purchased from a local tribe for $24. So like they were going to go get the deed and then they'd own Manhattan. That's why they blew up Federal Hall.
3: Do you recall the last time we had somebody named Eddie we suspected of being a wolf?
2: Uh, humanoids from the deep?
3: No. The howling.
2: Oh, okay. There you go. He tells her that Eddie went to prison because the explosion killed what Holt's community would call an apple.
0: A conservative Indian, red on the outside,
2: white inside. Dewey makes the call to question Eddie Holt, but unfortunately, he's working at the top of Brooklyn Bridge.
0: Want to talk to him? Go on up! You want to wait? Mars over there!
2: Here's where we learn that Albert Finney is a complete badass. Because he actually throws on a harness and walks the cable all the way to the top of the Brooklyn Bridge where these Native Americans are doing ironwork.
3: Man, I would do that if I got the chance to do that.
2: I would not. (laughs) It's a dizzying height and the scene is incredible and you'll never see anything like it again because they would never risk an actor's life sending them up here for this shit ever again. It's going to be green screen forever. They yeah, they yeah. won't even let an actor go outside ever again.
1: Yeah, um, I do like the concept of Albert Finney, like just being like, "I'm old. Like, I just what? How are? How many opportunities am I going to have to do something
2: crazy?" And apparently, he, uh, from people that worked on the set, said that he was basically drunk day in, day out for the entire shoot. Nice. Um, oh. But that
3: okay. Well, that <laughs> that, that makes that like a lot more. Dangerous. Yeah, it
2: makes it scarier <laughs> for the people making it, but it makes it less scary for him. I <laughs> But it was it was neat because I, I uh, listened to an interview where um, he talked about how they would be like, "How is he going to pull this shot off? He's completely wasted. There's it doesn't make any sense." And then they'd say, "Action!" And he would just go up, read the line, perfect, just exactly what you wanted. <laughs> and then he'd be drunk again in between takes, and they come back and you just do one more perfect take again. And it's just like, yeah, that's,
3: that's a professional,
2: <laughs> yeah, a professional drunk,
1: high functioning alcoholism.
2: As Dewey interrogates Holt, it becomes clear that Holt isn't attached to the cabling up here. Holt starts to tease Dewey by explaining that he can shapeshift into whatever he wants.
0: Oh yeah? Turn ourselves into a different animal. One night a salmon, next night a deer. Or a wolf.
2: Sure. He removes Dewey's buckle so that he's standing here unattached to the safety office. Or an eagle. He urges Dewey to spread his wings and fly from here. Holt disappears around a corner and Dewey buckles himself back in. Back at ESS, we learn from Neff's research that Holt installed some communication technology for their offices. She also confirms that he crossed paths with the Vanderveers moments before their death, though I'm not sure how they could possibly know this, because all he did was throw a bottle at a passing limousine and they didn't even stop to look around.
1: Well, unless this is more footage that was cut.
2: Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Apparently, he spends a lot of his time on these bridges. The ESS people watch him with their night vision, and he just sits there. So they saw him. Yeah, but that night, they wouldn't have seen him because were, there were people in a control room and there were people driving. But they're saying that he's up there all the time.
3: Yeah, but I, you know, I guess they... they why couldn't maybe the people in the controller room saw him if they watch this bridge all the time apparently
2: the only reason i don't think that's the case is because wouldn't they radio to the limo driver and say hey that crazy native american no, guy he's is there all the time but if he's gonna throw something at the car like what if it was a grenade this guy has a history of blowing up federal buildings
1: but did they have dedicated resources just to watching him
2: to watching eddie yeah i don't know i i got the impression that They've noticed him on this bridge other times when they were in Battery Park or other Mm. places. But why would they be looking at the bridge if he's in Battery Park? I don't know.
0: Talking to ancestors. He didn't uh, come any nearer to the Battery.
2: Not that anybody saw.
0: Maybe they didn't recognize him.
2: Back in his office, Dewey looks over all the details of the case. He taps one of Pauline's pearls against a drawing of the burnt-down church, and he has flashbacks to the location. We cut back to the morgue where Whittington is working late. Dewey surprises him by jabbing him in the side when he's looking into a microscope. Whittington shares some observations about the more recent victims from South Bronx. All of the organs left in the body were diseased in some way, cancerous. All the wounds are very similar as well. Whittington thinks the flesh wasn't cut but torn. Not like teeth.
0: Very sharp teeth.
3: But like they already said that they didn't think that these wounds could be made from an animal.
2: No, that was just Ferguson saying an animal wouldn't do this. Not that it couldn't.
3: Okay. So these wounds are consistent with animal bites, potentially. Yes. Okay. Because that was going to be my argument. is like, if you're saying that these can't be animal teeth, but
2: no, I they think, probably are. I think that was the beginning of what Richard called Ferguson, like, trying to defend the animals a little bit, mm. um, or trying to cover for them. And it's specifically mentioning that wolves have never killed anybody when they've killed lots of people. Um, is another example of that. But I, th- I think he meant wolves specifically would not do that, but this is potentially a new kind of wolf. A wolfen, if you will. Whittington has invited Ferguson to look at the wounds and confirm his animal diagnosis. Dewey mutters the word shape-shifting under his breath, and for some reason, Ferguson goes off on a whole tangent about it. But
0: the body is just a physical expression of the soul. The soul can shift the body into any, any shape it wants. What kind of survival is shiftiest? What is that shit? Well, reality is just a state of mind. If you change the mind, you can change... Fergie, it. Fergie, please.
2: Even though Dewey started the conversation, he's looking at Ferguson like he's totally fucking crazy because he sounds like he is. Whittington wants him to just shut up and say scientific things for a minute because he's starting to sound like an uncredible witness. While Whittington and Ferguson inspect the diseased organs, Dewey heads outside to the wigwam bar across the street for a drink.
3: So they're implying that they that everything left is diseased Did? everything that's not left get eaten is that what we're saying
2: i think so all the other organs were eaten yeah okay and i don't think eating cancer gives you cancer either necessarily you are what you eat i guess
3: you are a cancer um but like in the first body just the brain was missing wasn't that the case that would mean right. everything else was diseased in right. some way these were really unhealthy people or they
2: just didn't have time to sit around and eat the rest of it dewey watches a group of three native americans exit the bar and walk down the street before looking up at a full moon in the sky one of them is eddie holt and another is the supervisor who told dewey that he'd have to climb the bridge the supervisor puts a necklace on eddie and puts something in eddie's mouth before eddie walks away on his own it looks like he puts like whatever's hanging on this necklace into his mouth Mm. and then eddie leaves the other two guys dewey follows eddie to the beach where he strips nude under a pier eddie does not dewey <laughs> eddie bo- gets they down they both do <laughs> like, what? what is
3: happening under this pier
2: two can play at this game <laughs> under the boardwalk people naked as wolves under the boardwalk <laughs> boardwalk eddie gets down on all fours and presses his fingers into the sand to form animal prints he finds a puddle of water and starts lapping it up even though it's probably salt water yeah this is the beach <laughs> Eddie scampers off through the water and starts howling at the moon, which turns blood red in the sky, probably just from his perspective.
1: Scampers? Scampers. You didn't think he was scampering?
2: Do You want to see the replay? (laughs) That is scampering if I've ever seen it. He seems to finally notice Dewey and runs up to him to take an aggressive stance. He snarls and growls and jumps around after him, but then suddenly stands up straight on two legs.
0: Dewey, I told you. It's all in
2: the head we cut right to the alien pov cam running through central park
3: okay but this is okay so the implication of this scene is that this is his form of shape-shifting is just doing drugs and and wigging out on a beach
2: yeah maybe maybe he turns into a wolfen when no one's looking
3: i i I, I i thought this was definitive, no yeah I th- I think definitive evidence that... that he doesn't actually shave ships he just you know gets high and yeah i think that's correct. feels free on the yeah. beach okay
2: yeah that is the implication of this scene yes. okay but there's still werewolves in the movie
3: no there's not <laughs> this is this is the moment where we find out that there is not werewolves
2: <laughs> we cut right to the alien pov cam running through central park Somehow it gets into the Central Park Zoo and runs around looking at various exhibits. Do you guys recall the last time we saw the Central Park Zoo? Uh,
1: Crap, I I can picture it.
2: Hint, a bear escaped.
3: A bear escaped in the zoo?
2: Hint number two, it attacked a man in the park.
3: (laughs) How am I not remembering this?
2: (laughs) Hint number three, the man won. Who would win in a fight with a bear? Hercules, the almighty Hercules, of oh, course. Man. <laughs> Hercules in New York.
3: I, I still, I, I still. Starring don't Arnold I,
2: Schwarzenegger sh- and a man in a terrible bear costume.
3: Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> i'm sorry my brain was thinking about actual bears but i but like you're right it was just this awful costume yeah it was just
2: like a man <laughs> draped in a brown rug
3: oh oh wow yeah no my brain never cataloged that as actual bear
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're like you mean the, the guy in the bear costume <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be a bear costume in the movie The POV is now right outside Ferguson's office and can hear him inside describing the physical attributes of a wolf. Ferguson is watching documentary footage of wolves and speaking into a tape recorder about their high speeds, metabolism, and bite pressure. Here we get some really unfortunate footage of wolves being hunted from helicopters, first on a savannah and then in the snow, which is an image we'll see again next season at the start of John Carpenter's The Thing. Do you guys recall the last time we saw actual footage of animals being murdered in the snow?
3: I do. Yeah. What was Nothing that? personal.
2: That's right. Clubbing baby seals, keeping it real.
3: But for <laughs> some reason, this movie doesn't make it to the bottom of my list like that no. one. Did.
2: <laughs> the alien maybe because this isn't a fucking comedy. <laughs> this isn't a romantic comedy with baby seals getting clubbed in it. <laughs> the alien POV must be looking through a window too, because now we're seeing the footage of the wolf hunters with the thermal camera effects. Ferguson is moved to tears by the depressing footage.
1: Which he shouldn't be able to see. Wouldn't the TV just be one solid color?
2: Well, I think that they have thermal vision on top of regular vision. Okay, Because not everything is discolored in the same way. Ferguson is moved to tears by the depressing footage. He seemed unfazed at the morgue earlier, but dead wolves are just too much for this guy. Yeah. Ferguson hears weird sounds outside his office and picks up his phone to report a fire i don't know what the purpose of this phone call is i think it serves its purpose he asks them to send a truck to a nearby intersection and identifies himself as peter wolf he puts on a jacket hops on his moped and races out to the tunnel at the edge of the park to listen for the passing fire truck because he wants it to draw howls from the wolves he thinks are here watching him oh. i think he 100 percent knows what's going on and they start howling along to the siren just as he suspected they would oh
3: i didn't catch any of that yeah
2: same i did not (laughs) catch that he listens very carefully to the siren and it's joined by howling wolves who seem to be surrounding him in the darkness eventually it occurs to him that these howls are dangerously close and he starts the moped again to race back to his office coming around a blind turn ferguson is knocked clear of his bike and we cut to dewey waking up at home for some reason dewey leaves his apartment and heads out front to sleep in his car i don't know why he does that Dewey has quick flashbacks of Eddie Holt running around naked earlier in the night and then wakes up to see an enormous wolf standing on a concrete wall in front of his car. He flips on his headlights and the dog is gone.
3: Oh, he's in front of
2: um Oh, he's in front of her. He's building. in front of her building. Yeah, so I yeah. think he
3: went to sleep to near her to protect her.
2: Oh, okay, that's what happened then. So, when he flips on his headlights, the wolf is gone. Dewey has determined that these wolves followed him back into the city from South Bronx, and he is quickly in Neff's apartment to warn her. Before he even says a word, he's peeking out her windows to make sure they're safe. We get this bizarre optical effect where he's looking out the window, and then the shot suddenly zooms out to reveal her behind him. What is it? It's like a crash zoom out, Mm -hmm. but it works like a jump scare kind of. Dewey is embarrassed to even share what he suspects, and instead takes a seat on a chair to pass out. The alien POV approaches Neff's building and looks up at her balcony. Neff offers Dewey a glass of liquor to help him calm down, and we see that he is in her tub taking a bath all of a sudden.
3: This house, like, I mean, I guess it's an apartment, but it's still freaking enormous yeah. for New York. And I'm like, how?
2: Well, maybe her ex husband was Chris Vanderveer. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean,
3: yeah, this is a pretty fancy apartment for a cop.
2: Yeah. The alien POV floats around outside the building, sometimes a couple stories in the air, which seems impossible. It can hear Neff moaning and notices that she and Dewey are in bed together. We get some nice thermal imaging of Albert Finney's ass. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just as hot as I suspected.
1: (laughs) Temperature-wise. Temperature-wise, yeah. Thermal. I I did not get this, like, relationship.
2: No, it doesn't make much sense. In the book, they, they don't end up together ever. She has a husband... And he makes, like, flirty comments to her, but she's always just like, oh, that's so sad, you're you're this, like, kind of creepy old man. But you're a good cop, so we make good partners. And that's that's the limitation of their relationship. The next morning, we see Neff alone in bed with her cat as Dewey leaves the building. A fat man in a tracksuit is for some reason pushing Ferguson's moped through the street, but yeah. he can't operate it and it quickly falls over. He might also be drunk.
1: Yeah. I was I was like, is that supposed to be Ferguson's moped? I, I think it
3: is. I'm I think it's sure supposed he, to imply that a homeless man found it in the park or something. I just rode it
2: around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like that little detail though. It's like, whose idea was it to bring the moped back and just have a fat guy push it around?
3: <laughs> well, I thought that they were going to have him notice that that was Ferguson's moped. I don't think he,
2: he ever saw it. Yeah
3: unless that part was cut
2: maybe that morning whittington and dewey meet together in ferguson's office but he's nowhere to be found whittington is excited to share that he has found many other murders with similar lacerations and traces of wolf hair in his excitement he yanks a tuft of hair off the taxidermied wolf in the room and everyone looks at him annoyed like what are you doing why are you doing that whittington seems completely sold on the carnivorous wolves theory Whittington asks a janitor where Professor Ferguson is, because apparently he didn't come home last night. Whittington suggests putting in a call to locate Ferguson.
0: Maybe we ought to put out an all point on him. Victim or suspect?
2: Dewey suggests that it might be time to let the commissioner in on their theory, but Whittington warns him that he'll be put on a psychiatric hold. As he crunches down on a Lay's potato chip, Whittington says, You can't eat just one which was a famous Lay's slogan for a while, which I only remember because of the commercial where Kareem Abdul-Jabbar bets Larry Bird he can't eat just one chip. Tell you what, i bet you can't eat just one. One Lay's pay chip. And for some reason, Larry Bird agrees to the bet, even though there's no prize for eating just one, and there's no punishment for Kareem either way, so it ends with Larry Bird in a bald cap. Or maybe they shaved his head for this commercial, I don't know. Do you guys recall the last time we talked about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Airplane? Airplane, or possibly since then
3: oh
2: when he was not in a movie yeah but he's credited on imdb as being in the movie
1: it's not the visitor is it, it is the visitor oh, is it the visitor
2: nice we come back to the offices of ess where another interrogation is underway they're asking a random jesus looking guy about his affiliation with a german terrorist group some parts of his testimony seem to convince ross that this character is telling the truth and they put out a call to warren and to the fbi In his office, Dewey unpacks a new night vision camera and Whittington wants to play with the new toys. Warren stops by to invite them both to a meeting with Ross and the feds, but they turn down the offer. Dewey tells Warren the South Bronx body and the Vanderveer case are connected. Whittington suggests that whatever ate these people might be responsible for the hundreds of missing person cases that go unsolved every year. He also adds Dr. Ferguson's name to the list of potentially missing persons since they haven't been able to reach him all day. Dewey and Whittington pick two taller buildings in the South Bronx area overlooking the hunting grounds of the church. They both carry night vision scopes, and Whittington has a massive parabolic microphone. When Whittington finds a room on the third floor to observe from, he frightens himself by coming face to face with a filthy mirror and mistaking his own face in it for a monster. That night, they watch the church in darkness. Whittington cracks open a beer can, and his microphone magnifies the sound of the rupturing can to the volume of a gunshot scaring himself again. He turns and burps into the microphone to annoy Dewey, who asks where he is. When Dewey swings his scope to the window, he finds Whittington hanging his ass out in the night air.
0: Black moon over Manhattan!
2: Dewey notices steam rising from outside the church, possibly condensation and an animal's breath. Dewey approaches the church on foot and Whittington asks him what the hell he thinks he's doing. I'm curious too, because I thought the whole point was to stay over here where it's safe. As Dewey explores the church, Whittington thinks he hears footsteps behind him and his own building, but then thinks nothing of it. (laughs) Like, whatever. There's not, like, murderers here. Dewey opens a closet in his search, and it's inexplicably full of birds. (laughs) I don't (laughs) understand why.
3: You don't keep birds in your closet? No,
2: not anymore. Not since the incident. Do you remember (laughs) the last time we opened a door that shouldn't have birds behind it and a bird flew out? It was a bathroom.
3: (laughs) (laughs) i don't recall
2: the burning uh we joked that someone was just trying to see if a bird could survive with their shit stink (laughs) (laughs) like
1: a canary in a coal mine yeah
2: (laughs) we cut to the alien pov and finally confirm that it belongs to a wolf as one sneaks up on whittington from a hole in the ceiling above him in the wolf's perspective we can hear whittington crunching loudly on chips Suddenly the wolf growls and Whittington can't even swing his gun fast enough to defend himself. The wolf tackles him through a wall and Dewey scrambles to his rescue when he hears the commotion over their comms. It's too late though. Dewey fires shots into the shadows of the building and as he continues moving across the third floor, Whittington's corpse is somehow dropped on him from above. Dewey inspects the body first, where I would just be emptying my clip into the ceiling that the monsters just dropped this body from. Whittington's neck is slashed open and we hear the first official reuse of the Howie scream. Yeah. Yeah! Which was an original scream sound when we last heard it in 1980's The Ninth Configuration. Yeah. The two films have six sound department credits in common, but I'm choosing to credit sound effects editor Lon Bender for this reuse, and I fully expect to hear it again this season in our next Stacey Keach title, Road Games, which features a sound editor credit for Mr. Bender. We cut to the ESS offices, where the full force of their private security team are being deployed in concert with the FBI to attack the stronghold of the German terrorist group Götterdammerung. We hear lots of gunshots, and the ESS monitors depict structure fires on the compound of an unrelated terrorist group. <laughs> like, they yeah. like, what? Why are you guys doing this to us right now? We cut back to the wigwam bar, and Dewey stumbles in scratched and bloody. Even though we never saw him tangle with the wolves, I'm wondering if something else got cut here. Like, he must have actually fought with this wolf. There's a big slash on his face, and his eye has scrapes over it. The crowd is stunned to silence by his appearance, and all we can hear is the country-western cover of Don Gibson's Sea of Heartbreak on the radio. At the end of the bar, he finds the three Native American characters he saw leaving together the other night. Eddie seems to preempt any questions Dewey might have by launching right into the mythology.
0: It's not wolves. It's wolfen. For 20,000 years, Wilson. Ten times your fucking Christian era. The skins and the wolves, the great hunting nations, lived together nature in balance then the slaughter game.
2: it's basically exactly how ferguson described it earlier they were both hunted to near extinction but the smartest wolves were able to conceal themselves in the enormous cities of the western invaders they hunted very carefully and never left any clues to their existence in the book it's spelled out that upon the death of a wolfen the rest of the pack consume their fallen member they also spell out that the brains of human victims are consumed whenever the wolves are worried that knowledge of their existence could somehow be collected from the heads of the deceased because they don't know how brains work.
3: Okay, so that's why only a brain was missing earlier?
2: Because they saw the wolf with enough time to register the memory and they want to make sure there's no proof of their existence anywhere. Okay. Even in a dead brain.
3: But this is reaffirming that they're wolves.
2: Yes. Yes.
3: They're not werewolves.
2: It depends on your source.
3: What does that mean?
2: In the book, they're werewolves.
3: But they're not people who turn into
2: wolves. Correct. But they use the word werewolves to describe them, even though they don't turn into... They're, they're never people. They're always wolves, but they're a new species of wolf that's never been seen.
3: But that's not a werewolf. It's a wolfen.
2: Well, then you need to write Whitley Stryber a letter. <laughs> say, these aren't werewolves if they're never people. But his, his use of the term is that these are werewolves because... They are what people referred to as werewolves when werewolf legends came to be. So when people said there are humans who turn into werewolves, it was because these wolves were so smart that they assumed that they used to be humans.
1: And that they're specifically only feeding on humans.
2: Right. So they must be what people were calling werewolves that whole time. So the word werewolf was invented to describe this species. Uh, okay. So it's it's semantics whether or not these are werewolves or not. But they don't turn into people. So if that's, yeah there's
3: no transformations it's not the you know Native Americans in this film turning into them We're all in agreeance that yes. at no point are these things humans they Correct. are always wolves yes okay it's
2: just a matter of whether you can accept that this is a this is an unseen species of wolf that was in ancient times referred to as a werewolf because of its intelligence okay It's only possible to read the minds of these wolves because there are several chapters of the book written from the wolf's perspective where they actually refer to each other by their titles and they talk about the politics of their their pack and everything it's actually pretty interesting suddenly everyone in the bar is sharing their thoughts on wolf culture dewey argues in half sentence mutterings that they can't possibly consider these wolves civilized after all the killing
0: but in the end it is all
2: for hunting ground eventually the bar is filled with the sound of native americans emulating wolves and we cut to dewey on the verge of sleep somewhere else we see his face duplicated dozens of times across the screen, and we realize we're seeing him in the reflective hanging blinds of Chris VanderVeer's office. He plays the wind chimes on VanderVeer's desk, and he picks up a silver hard hat and shovel from the groundbreaking ceremony.
3: The chimes on the desk like match the ones that were in battery park right. that they were playing with, right? Because they he died. designed
2: that whole display, probably.
3: Yeah, that makes sense.
2: He puts together that the wolves saw Vanderveer at the site and followed him here to kill him and prevent the development on their hunting ground. Dewey watches an investor presentation of the planned development on a projector television like the ones we've seen in Middle Age Crazy and The Visitor so far. We needlessly get an echoing of Vanderveer's assistant explaining what the scale model is. Suddenly, something leaps over Dewey's head. But then the lights are flicked on, and it turns out Warren just tossed a fur coat over his head as a joke.
0: Sorry, Dewey, I couldn't resist. There's your wolf.
3: How did he know he was here? Like, I don't know. Like, why did he show up here?
2: How do people know he's here later? <laughs> like, I don't understand why yeah. people keep finding him in this room. Or how he got in here. There's no security in this building?
1: Well, I mean, it's part of an ongoing investigation, yeah, so they might, they might have access to things related to the murder.
2: Well, if they did, then maybe he met with a security guard downstairs who led the cops up here.
1: Mm. But here's my problem with this: is that Whittington is dead, M- mauled by something. It, the terrorist group didn't clearly didn't kill Whittington. Right. Yeah. So that that's like my would be my big thing is like you may have gotten this terrorist group, but they didn't kill this guy. Right.
2: Turns out when they demolished that unrelated terrorist group, they found this fur coat and decided that this is why they kept finding hairs at the crime scenes. Somehow, even Neff is convinced.
0: Their terrorist motto: the
3: end of the world by wolves and and they like to also kill homeless people for no reason
2: the end of the world and math addicts by wolves
1: (laughs) and not and not eat the not take the tainted organs right
3: by wolves and
1: kill
2: whittington (laughs) kittens by kittens by wolves (laughs) they all leave the building together but when they get to warren's car dewey senses they are surrounded warren and neff see the wolves too I'll be god fucking damned.
1: I, I like this moment for the chief. Yeah, because he's been
2: like the jaws mayor the whole time.
1: Yeah, but at least he acknowledges at the last minute, like ah crap.
2: Yeah, in the book he's a much bigger asshole, and they're like, yeah, dogs did it. We figured it, like right away they they say dogs probably did this because nothing else makes any sense. And he's like, fuck you guys, you're gonna get me fired. I'm not gonna say dogs did this. Find yeah. something else.
1: Uh, it was at this moment um, that the score took on a very familiar (laughs) (laughs)
2: familiar tone for you yeah
1: i was was, you know because it's james horner and and i was listening to i was like i've heard this yeah i've heard this from james horner multiple times yeah that's
2: funny yeah he does recycle stuff on occasion i guess um i i also felt like uh did did james horner do the score for humanoids from the deep oh I think he did.
1: That would make sense because it was uh, Roger Corman.
2: Because at the very beginning of the film, like the first music that we're hearing over the wide shots of the city, this reminds me of parts of Humanoids from the Deep that I'm pretty sure James Horner did that as well. I don't know if it's a recycle necessarily, but it's a very similar sounding. He did that one. He did? Okay. Because I remember in our Humanoids review comparing it to the House of Cards music Mm. because it's just a bunch of like echoey horns and sort of like lazily, you know... it's not the same composer as house of cards but at the time i was like this sounds really much like that to me some of the wolves here just look like painted dogs to me but supposedly they're all legit wolves one white wolf stands above them all at the top of the steps and bears some huge ass fangs and it's really a beautiful creature but i feel like you don't get to see real fangs like this in a horror movie very Mm -hmm. often Dewey warns Warren not to run, but he does it anyway. He tries to whip out his gun, and his hand is quickly bitten off at the wrist, tossing a convenient splash of blood in Neff's face. One hand short, Warren manages to get into the car and roll the window up. He radios the station about the situation here on Wall Street when another wolf leaps into the back seat. I do like that when he's trying to grab for the radio, like he keeps accidentally reaching for things with his stump, and yeah. like he can't flip down the visor and anything. He's just smearing blood all over the inside of his car. Warren dives out of the car to avoid the backseat wolf, and is met by another who bites completely through his neck, lopping his head off. As his headless body falls to the ground, it somehow manages to pull the trigger of its gun. Even though I thought he lost the hand with the gun, maybe he picked it up again, or maybe there was another gun in the car.
1: Uh, or or was it the severed hand is starting to like go through spasms? Oh, maybe
2: something like that. But it looks like there's a there's a hmm. muzzle flash right near his hand as he's falling down without a head. But we see Warren's head roll to a stop in the street and its mouth is opening and closing as if trying to speak, exactly how Whittington described the French decapitations at the start of the film. Dewey pulls Neff aside and fires his gun at Warren's car, inexplicably transforming it into a two-story fireball on the street. (laughs) They run back to Vanderveer's building and put a bullet through the front window to get in and to summon police by way of the building's alarm. Given my experience with dogs, the wolves would have no way to follow them inside because they would assume that the windows that they shot out were still there, and they would never cross <laughs> the threshold.
1: Also, they got into the elevator, and I would just push a button for a floor and then hit the stop button and just stay in between the between god- floors. Yeah, yeah and just stay true. in the goddamn
2: elevator. That's a way to do it. Dewey and Neff get to the elevators and head up to the floor with Vanderveer's office. It's one of those elevators where it opens directly into the suite instead of on a hallway. They should have jammed the elevator open when they got to the top, like we saw in our Patreon review of Doomsday Machine, so nothing could follow them up here. I was worried that the wolves were just going to hop in the elevator and push a button. Push of a button.
1: <laughs> <laughs> just see the wolves in the elevator, like the Blues Brothers, just sitting there quietly.
2: <laughs> oh, I was thinking like Buddy the Elf, just like oh no, wiping down all the buttons.
1: Uh, and then the Blues Brothers, when they're just standing in the elevator, and you see all the stuff going on outside, but it keeps just cutting to them standing perfectly still <laughs> as the elevator's moving. Yeah.
2: Cops arrive downstairs and find Headless Warren in the street. Up in Vanderveer's office, Neff spots the reflection of a wolf on the wall of blinds, but it's not a reflection. She's actually looking between the blinds at a wolf outside the building somehow, maybe on a balcony. And then the wolf runs and dives through the window into the office. Then there are two and then three. Even the white one's in here now. Dewey levels his gun at the albino wolf and they have a short staring contest. Dewey then lowers his gun, dumps the bullets on the floor, and then walks to the scale model of Vanderveer's proposed development project. Dewey picks up the silver shovel and demolishes the model, as if by doing this, the project would simply be canceled. Yeah. The wolves all howl in approval, and then a crowd of cops bust into the office. Dewey shouts for them to hold their fire, but even after a flurry of shots, the wolves are gone. Ross from ESS is very confused by the scene. What the hell happened up here? terrorists (laughs)
0: terrorists
2: <laughs> i love that line we see slow motion footage of the wolves running back to south bronx and dissolve to eddie and his bull roarer again in wolf pov we arrive back at the church up the stairs to the tower the sun sets on new york and we freeze frame at the top of brooklyn bridge as the native americans howl down to their wolf friends and credits roll that's Wolfen, ladies and gentlemen in the book there are no indians or terrorists ever mentioned And instead of land developers, the first two victims are cops. Also, where here they seem to win, at least in the short term, the book spells the fate of the Wolfen when Neff successfully kills the leaders of the pack and then shares the truth of the Wolfen with the world, ensuring their extinction. It's a much simpler story.
1: Yeah. It's a
2: much more depressing story, too, I guess.
1: I mean, I I guess the way you look at it, like, in that they're going to just continue killing
2: right and who are they going to kill just the poor people yeah it's not like it's a happy ending that the wolves got to stop the development it's like oh now they can continue killing poor people great that's the end of uh that's the end of wolfen um i liked it i don't think i like it as much as the howling but i liked it
1: well it's a very different movie from the howling yeah and and i don't even know if i would call it horror uh more than more than i guess psychological or drama yeah um but yeah, thriller i guess yeah yeah because like because as we established there are no there are no werewolves yeah or, there's nothing supernatural going on yeah it, it's
2: well i guess they are it supernatural is,
3: it's spiritual i don't know they're not because they're not
2: is, natural so they're, they are yeah. they are by definition supernatural
1: yes correct but not supernatural in the traditional sense i guess
2: yeah uh because it it doesn't break any rules. Hypernatural. Of yeah <laughs>
3: Well, except I'm not clear in if they actually are disappearing wolves.
2: Like, well, they seem are they to...
3: spirits or are they actual just just regular wolves?
2: Can they fly though? It seems like they can fly a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. They're but... outside of a skyscraper and they jump through the window on the thirtieth floor.
1: Well, I don't know the shape of the building. I'm assuming it's a vertical. It's yeah. just a big
3: slide. <laughs> <Wee>! <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're just trying to get up and just going <laughs> scurrying up perfect. Uh, or maybe they took another elevator and then got out to the balcony. I don't know.
2: <laughs> who knows.
1: The, the, you know what? I bet all of it's explained in the missing two hours. You know what I have to admit, though,
2: <laughs> is the cinematography is gorgeous throughout. Oh, yeah. Um, I love all the photography for this movie. and and including the steady camp photography, which is obviously Garrett Brown again, who we had, uh, just a couple movies back in in uh, blowout. Um, and who invented the cam, so of course he's the best at it. But he actually gets, like, at the head of the film, he gets Steadicam photography credit on this one. Um, and it's lovely. All all the... Even the Wolf POV stuff, I feel like works really well. It's never so disorienting that I don't like the look of it. Yeah. Uh,
1: my major criticism is just, like, the relationship between Neff and Dewey Wilson. I was like, I, yes. I didn't think that that was really necessary. Uh, and, I mean... I guess Dewey is is somewhat changed by by this event, but it would be different if if he was still a cop, and then this is what makes him retire. Right. But he was already semi-retired, and then came back. Well, and was now, he
2: retired or was he like on suspension?
1: Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I think he was fired. I, I think I think that oh, he was he was relieved of duty uh, in some fashion
2: because of his drinking.
1: Yeah, and and then this. Brings him back, and I'm sure that this is going to cause him to not come back again. Right. Yeah. Like I I feel like this is. It it just seemed like a weird thing to bring him back, and then give him such a life changing case where he's going to like need to reevaluate everything about him. Yeah. It should. This should have been his last case.
2: In the book, it is his last case. Well, there you go. Because he (laughs) dies. Oh. Okay. Well, that also helps. He's killed in the last scene with the wolf, and she's left to defend herself against the entire pack basically so she actually has a lot more agency in the book Mm. um in this she's kind of missing for the middle of it and suddenly Whittington steps in to be his partner yeah which is not the case in the book like and and the character's name is Evans the medical examiner in the book and he's competent he's good at his job but he doesn't go so far beyond the scope of what a medical examiner is supposed to Mm. do which is just look at bodies and tell you what it means not go Um, hunting yeah he doesn't have to like go do a surveillance like thing that that should have just been her for that scene but then that wouldn't explain like it wouldn't make sense for her to die in that mission and not come back at the end of the movie
1: well i, I like i like that i like the concept of being able to somewhat rationalize or not rationalize but uh negotiate of sorts with these wolves like yeah you recognize that this is a gun and you recognize the act of me disarming myself yeah and and removing myself as a threat versus Oh, they just kill him, and she kills them, and then the end of the story. Yeah,
2: in, in another interview, I think it was on the Projection Booth podcast, um, they speak with it's either uh, it's either Rupert uh, it's either Rupert Hitzig or uh, John D. Hancock, who talks about the cut of the movie, the four and a half hour cut, and apparently a lot of it was like him going to conventions where people are showing off all this spy technology that he ends up just having in his office in one shot all of a sudden that's true but because they're trying he was trying to show how humans are artificially recreating all this technology that wolves just have built in they can hear really far distances Mm. they can see things at night they can move really fast stuff like that they can track sense and stuff like that um because then when you have them in the wigwam bar one of them even says you got your technology but you lost lost your senses so now now you're what's being hunted but yeah i I think the story still works even though it's clearly been chopped to pieces right there's a lot of red herrings yeah like you know we we mentioned the
1: voodoo stuff at the beginning and then eddie holt is is not involved at all
2: and i don't think the terrorists are ever considered a red herring no that's just supposed to be like a dumb thing that the fbi is wasting their time on I don't know if it's a waste of time. I, th- I think it's supposed to show why there's only two cops working on the actual Wolf investigation. Right. It's because they're like, everybody else is distracted with this thing that you knew from the beginning wasn't the case.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I don't know. I, I don't know that I would give this movie a thumbs up. I don't know that I would recommend it to anyone because I was, it was certainly not what I expected going into it. Um, and probably not for the better. You know, honestly, like, i would have preferred a you know more more of a horror film i would have preferred more wolves attacking people like it just what it just really wasn't i don't know it wasn't particularly interesting
2: i think i might prefer a more faithful adaptation of the book just because it it handles that relationship between the two detective characters better the the uh neff and yeah and dewey um that in that he's interested in her but she's not interested in him and they never cross that line it's just like a no we're just both good cops and that's the end of it It, it, but because you're making it into a movie there has to be a romantic interest and there has to be a sex scene i also think that uh if these wolves are so smart that they would never have killed this developer because that's going to draw so much attention killing a billionaire where in the book it's like two of the younger wolves accidentally like separated from the pack and killed these cops by mistake Mm. not knowing what that would do and of course that's going to bring the full force of the law against them i mean
3: it sounds it sounds like the book is considerably better than the movie
2: yeah but it's also why uh dewey is under so much more pressure to get answers because it's like they don't they don't want it to look like cops are so incompetent that they could get killed by dogs so they're like you can't say that you literally can't announce that anywhere that that's what happened even if everyone is assuring us that that's what happened where if it was billionaires they'd be like yeah they got killed by wolves who cares like it's yeah. not embarrassing for us personally that these billionaires were unable to defend themselves from wild animals yeah um but yeah i still enjoyed it i think it's a thumbs up for me
1: yeah i i would give it a
2: thumbs up um do we know where this is going Letterboxed? yeah
1: i mean
3: I guess I didn't, I don't have it particularly high. It's, it's also, I mean, it's also not particularly low. I guess it's kind of in the middle ish. Uh, I have it at number 67 out of 100. It is below Superman 2 and above Kill and Kill Again.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, I have it at 34, uh, which puts it below the hand, but above the sea wolves (laughs) so
2: uh it's got two movies in a row with severed hands though
1: yeah
3: and and wolves
2: and two movies in a row with wolves (laughs) um i actually also have it next to a severed hand movie but it's right underneath demonoid messenger of death uh which is in 48 so wolfen is in 49 uh, which puts it just above the monster club our writer director was michael wadley he's also credited as terrorist informer in this so he might be the jesus looking guy Mm. this is also his only non-documentary credit of his six director credits for our woodstock documentaries including the 1970 documentary titled simply woodstock do you guys recall the last time we saw the 1970 documentary titled simply woodstock
3: oh yeah what movie was that
2: Somebody had it memorized. If you could memorize every movie, why would you memorize that one? What if that was the only one you could memorize?
1: Fan? What no, if it was the only no, movie the that
2: existed anymore? The, shoot. The Omega Man. Oh. Charlton Heston watching it over and over again at the last movie theater.
1: Well, I was way off. I was thinking of the one, the the kid the the kid who was killing
2: people but liked movies. Fade to Black? Yeah, Fade to Black. Oh, yeah, no, no not that, that one. one. He doesn't care about movies as new as the 70s. The uncredited director John D. Hancock also wrote and directed Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which is what this podcast would have been called if it was a horror-only podcast. (laughs) His DP for the reshoots was Yann DeBont, who this year DP'd Private Lessons and Roar, but comes back to direct films like Speed and Twister. Novelist Whitley Stryber also wrote the novel adapted into Tony Scott's The Hunger and Philip Morris' Communion, which is that Crazy looking movie with Christopher Walken and a bunch of tiny aliens. I think I've shown you clips what? of it before. We should watch it because that one's supposedly based on his own experiences as an <laughs> alien abductee. What? Whitley striber was abducted by aliens <laughs> and makes appearances at alien abduction conventions.
0: Oh my god!
2: Writer David Iyer previously wrote the screenplay for Catalani and Little Britches. These were his only two credits uncredited writer eric roth also uncredited on the script for the drowning pool and the onion field he's credited on airport 79 later he wrote forrest gump the postman horse whisperer the insider ali munich the curious case of benjamin button aka forrest gump 2 the newest a star is born denny villeneuve's dune and scorsese's upcoming killers of the flower moon the music here was from james horner craig Safin, or Safin whose work we heard last year in Fade to Black and Die Laughing had composed a full score which was thrown out completely 12 days before the film was to be delivered. James Horner was brought in at the last moment because of his work earlier this season on The Hand, and he put together a terrific score. that he would later recycle parts of in 1982's The Wrath of Khan and again later in James Cameron's Aliens. Now, did you recognize all these clips independently?
1: Well, I so what first got me was that last scene with the wolves on the street. Yeah, and I was like, "Oh man, this sounds like the the uh, Ripley driving the car music from Aliens." Yeah, um, but then I was like, but then I was listening to it again. I was like, but it also kind of sounds like the sort of like Wrath of Khan uh, battle battle music. And so I went through the I went through the complete soundtracks of both. I was just like yeah. like listening is like but James Horner and I'm not saying that James Horner is like recycling or copying himself. He just has a style. Yeah, yeah. And, and he he has things that he likes to do in his scores. Right. And and I hear so much of his other music in his in, in every in, in any one score I always think of other movies that he's done. Yeah, that makes sense. And and so just you know, reacting to Wolfen was oh, I've I feel like I'm watching Wrath of Khan or Aliens or.
2: Well, I appreciate you going through and finding those clips because that would have taken me much longer, I think, than it took you to do.
1: Well, they're just, all they all just happened to be soundtracks that I'm, other than Wolfen that I was with. Well, familiar you're a big with. James Horner fan. too. Yes, absolutely.
2: I mean, what you said, Jerry Goldsmith is your number one, right? Yeah. So you like Alien, scorers,
1: right? <laughs> uh, but I'm really curious about that Craig Saffon score.
2: I think there was a version that was released with the other score, and uh, it made use of mostly Native American instruments. Oh. It's a very like sound-oriented score, um, rather than being traditional music score. Not that the Horner score is traditional music. No, either. no.
1: You said that the book though didn't have any any Native American stuff.
2: Correct. Yeah, there's no reference to that at that, all. That's so strange. To I make think that, that was added because he looked up the origin of the word wolfen and, and saw that it had to do with yeah. Native Americans and wolves being lumped together as a sort of like outer species
1: well and it's interesting that this is uh two times this week that i had watched a movie that dealt with construction workers and specifically about referencing that native americans do a lot of high altitude construction work huh and (laughs) because i was watching i introduced my niece to the movie dark man Oh okay um and the villain at the end is when they're fighting up on the skyscraper yeah he, he and the villain's talking about i got my first job up here just me and the indians yeah and and my niece goes did he say the indians and, and i was like yeah this is just the thing that i became aware of yeah apparently, apparently
2: that was a stereotypical thing that native yeah. americans worked on the tops of bridges and the tops of skyscrapers yeah.
1: it was like high paying dangerous work that no one was willing to do and yeah. that th- we'll do it
2: yeah We've also heard Horner's work so far in Humanoids from the Deep, Eh, we didn't have to look it up, even. Battle Beyond the Stars, the Breaker Morant trailer, which bizarrely repurposed the Battle Beyond the Stars music, and The Hand. He's back later this year scoring Deadly Blessing and The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper, and later Wrath of Khan, 48 Hours, *Crawl*, Commando, Aliens, Willow, Land Before Time, Field of Dreams, Casper, Apollo 13, Jumanji, Titanic, Avatar, and then he tragically passed away in a plane crash not far from here. He was 61 years old. Cinematographer Jerry Fisher has lots of great credits, including Spies, Juggernaut, The 77 Island of Dr. Moreau, The Last Remake of Bow Guest, Wise Blood for a Minnesota earlier this season, The Ninth Configuration from last season, and Victory just around the corner of this season. Later he lights Yellowbeard, Highlander, Black Rainbow, and Exorcist 3. Always love a good yellow beard reference. I know. Because of all the changes, there are four credited editors on this film. The first is Marshall M. Borden, who previously edited Cloud Dancer, which we covered with a mini this season. Editor Martin J. Bram, this was his sixth and last editing credit after five episodes of Dukes of Hazard. Dennis Dolan, this was his second editing credit after Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, and later Repo Man. Last season we had him as an assistant editor on Carney, and the final editor is Chris Lebenzon. This was his second editing credit after Larry Cohen's The Secret Files of J. Edgar Hoover. He later cuts Weird Science, Top Gun, Midnight Run, Hudson Hawk, and starting with Batman Returns he became the regular editor of Tim Burton's, following him to Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow, Planet of the Apes, Big Fish, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Corpse Bride, Sweeney Todd, Alice in Wonderland, Dark Shadows, Frank and Weenie, Miss Peregrine, and Dumbo. Lebenson returns to the Top Gun franchise as the editor of the upcoming Top Gun Maverick, which I think is coming out this year.
1: Maybe. <laughs> Who knows?
2: Albert Finney was Dewey Wilson. Amazingly, this is our first Finney film. He has four Best Actor nominations for Tom Jones, Murder on the Orient Express, The Dresser, and Under the Volcano, and a supporting nomination for Aaron Brokovich. But sadly, he never won. He was also in the 1970 Scrooge, and he's back later this season as Dr. Larry Roberts in Looker. Next season, he is Daddy Warbucks in Annie. He was in Traffic, Big Fish, Corpse Bride, Born Ultimatum, and finally Skyfall before passing away in 2019. Diane Venora played Rebecca Neff. This was her first feature film. She's back as Gloria Swanson in The Cotton Club, Justine in Heat, and Gloria Capulet in The Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet. She's Leanne Wigand in The Insider also from Eric Roth and at the time Venora was better known for her stage work and Wadley intentionally packed the cast with Broadway regulars because those are the type of actors he preferred. Edward James almost played Eddie Holt. This is only his second named character after our Minnesota review of Virus. He was Lieutenant Martin Castillo in 107 episodes of Miami Vice. He was Judge Robert Mendoza on the West Wing. He was Commander William Adama on Battlestar Galactica, Professor James Geller on Dexter, Gaff in Blade Runner, and he's possibly best known for Jaime Escalante in Stand and Deliver, for which he earned his lone Oscar nomination. Gregory Hines played Whittington. We saw him earlier this season in Brooks' History of the World Part 1. He's also in the 86 Running Scared and The Cotton Club. He was best known for his tap dancing, Broadway stage career, and sadly for dying of liver cancer at the age of 57. So another young death for this crew, cast and crew. Tom Noonan played Ferguson. This was his fourth title for us after Willie and Phil, Gloria, and Heaven's Gate. He's also Kane in RoboCop 2, Ripper in Last Action Hero, and Almost Everyone in Anomalisa.
1: I, I especially like that he worked at a zoo right, in yeah. this movie because like, it's zoo-sized. <laughs> <laughs>
2: He would reunite with Diane Venora five years later in FX. Dick O'Neill played Warren. He was Frost in The Jerk. He was Charlie Cagney on Cagney and Lacey. He was Commissioner Geis on Family Matters. So he worked with uh, Reginald Bell Johnson again. Bertie played Old Indian. He was John Eagle in Invasion USA. Do you guys remember the last time we dealt with a Native American character named John Eagle? No. Humanoids from the Deep. Ah. Uh should have known that was the native american character that keeps uh, getting accused of killing everybody's dogs for no reason peter michael goetz played ross he's back as charles duluth in prince of the city just a few movies away later he shows up in the world according to garp chud jumping jack flash my girl and father of the brides one and two reginald bell johnson played a morgue attendant this was his first film hooray yeah. reginald bell johnson He's lots of cops. <laughs> A lot of cops. Uh, the first couple diehards, Family Matters, Ghostbusters, Turner and Hooch. And he actually reprises his Turner and Hooch role on the Disney Plus reboot of Turner and Hooch coming soon, or maybe it's out now, who knows? On the Amazon series Invincible, the titular superhero attends Reginald Vell Johnson High School, and the principal, B. N. Winslow, is voiced by Reginald Vell Johnson. Perfect. <laughs> James Tolkien played Baldy. He's Mr. Strickland, the high school principal in Back to the Future. He's also Wigan in War Games, Detective Lubick in Masters of the Universe. He's back soon as George Polito in Prince of the City. And he actually reunited with Michael J. Fox for a Tales from the Crypt episode, Season 3, Episode 3, The Trap, that Fox directed in 1991. Donald Symington played Lawyer. He was Annie Hall's dad in Annie Hall. E. Brian Dean played Fauchek. He played sergeants in both Nighthawks and Stardust Memories so far on the show. Victor Arnold played Roundin Bush, he was Charlie in our Shaft Patreon review, and Officer Kendall in The First Deadly Sin. Frank Adonis played Scola, he was Patsy in Raging Bull, Frankie in True Romance, Vinny in Ace Ventura, and Rocky in Casino. Raymond Sarah played Detective, he was Chief Stearns in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one and two. Jerry Hewitt played Victim. I don't know which victim. I'm assuming the drug addict because the other ones had names. Right. This is actually Jerry's seventh appearance on the podcast after Simon, Hot T-Shirts, The Exterminator, Christmas Evil, Ford Apache, The Bronx, and The Nesting. He was also a baseball fury in The Warriors and uses a still from that in his IMDb photo. Roy Brocksmith played Fat Jogger in Park. I think this is also the guy who stole the moped.
1: Yeah, I I was looking for Roy because he's he's very... A very noticeable gentleman yeah
2: but just because the the guy stealing the moped is dressed in a full tracksuit, i think this yeah. is supposed to be him um i'm assuming there must have been a shot of him finding the bike
1: right right and
2: then crashing it out here he was dick lobel in stardust memories last season he's mike the mailman and scrooged he's federal agent davis in tango and cash and he's dr edgemar in total recall Rhino Thunder played a Native American. He's back as Awatana the Old One in Hot Shots. Caitlin O'Heaney played an ESS operator. She was Amy Jensen in He Knows You Alone and Snow White Charming on The Charmings, a sitcom about fantasy characters falling through a portal into 1980s Los Angeles. Linda Gary played an ESS voice. She was Tila in the original He-Man series and Aunt May in the mid-90s Spider-Man animated series. Charles Howerton was another ESS voice. He's Clutch Cougar in Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype. Burda DeBenning is another ESS voice. He was Dr. Ted Nelson in The Incredible Melting Man and Mr. Jordan in Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Corey Burton was an ESS voice. Very busy voice actor. Yeah. He provides the voice of the Critters in Critters. He's the uncredited voice of Reverend Henry Kane in Poltergeist 2 and 3. He's Spike, Braun, and Shockwave in the Transformers show and movie. He's a dink in Spaceballs. He's Judge Doom's high pitch voice in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's the voice of Dale and Zipper on Rescue Rangers, James Bond Jr. on James Bond Jr., Brainiac in a few DC animated series, Count Dooku on Star Wars Clone Wars, Captain Hook on Jake and the Neverland Pirates, Ludwig Von Drake on DuckTales, and most recently he was the voice of Cad Bane on The Book of Boba Fett. Did I miss anything?
1: No, no. Anyway, I mean i missed lots of lots of stuff nothing very active super but those were all my some of my favorite ones
2: patricia paris was ess voice also she's ma gorg on fraggle rock she was christopher robin's mom in a bunch of winnie the pooh stuff andre stroika was another ess voice mostly voice acting credits including lots of appearances as the owl in winnie the pooh videos also starlight on rainbow bright Dan Sturkey was an ESS voice. He showed up earlier this season in two of the four Emmenegger-Sandler direct-to-video garbage titles that got minisodes to kick off the year, specifically PSI Factor and Captive. Mel Wells was an ESS voice. We saw him in Dr. Heckle and Mr. Hype for a minisode this season, but he's back later this season as Abu Habib Bibubu in Smokey Bites the Dust. I'm sure that's a very well-written character. Yes. Angel Ramirez Jr. played Wild Boy. Who was the Wild Boy? He was Julio in Bustin' Loose earlier this season. I think that's the kid who starts fires. Is that Julio? Or is it the younger kid that plays video games? I can't remember. The brother of the pregnant girl in Fort Apache, the Bronx, and the beggar that Christopher Walken befriends in Dogs of War and then wills all of his shit to when he goes on his suicide mission. Tom Waits played the drunken bar owner. This is only his third credit after Mumbles in Stallone's Paradise Alley and a trumpet player in One from the Heart. He's back later in The Outsider rumblefish the cotton club down by law the two jakes the fisher king he's renfield in coppola's dracula doc heller in the mystery men he's mr nick in the imaginarium of dr parnassus hermit bob in the dead don't die and rex blau in pta's licorice pizza despite these awesome credits he's still best known for his music which we heard earlier this season in a minisode review of ralph Waite's on the nickel for which he performs the title track those are all the credits i have for this movie
3: Oh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> well, I,
1: I wanted Hold to bring on. up. I <laughs> missed some people. Oh my god. Well, how, how, I know. Did you really? <laughs> well, I, I just wanted to bring up because uh, I I did uh, I worked for a short time for Rupert Hitzig. Oh okay. And, and so I just like to you know I just like to throw that out there. That's a little bit of trivia for about Richard.
2: What was the title that uh, you did with <laughs> Rupert?
1: Uh, no titles. I I worked uh, part time for him. I logged. I just did log logged footage. Uh, He had gone into working mostly in industrial and internal type film production. Okay, interesting. Uh, But, uh, yeah, so I worked with him for a short while. He was an interesting guy. There you go. Uh, And uh, I wanted to also bring up one of the music, uh, other music credits of Bob Badami, uh, who's a name you will see a lot in films, usually as Music Wrangler,
2: okay interesting
1: um he's one of uh, zimmer's company but he also works a lot with uh trevor rabin and he's just always around like you just see his name like oh Dami involved with the music in some in some kind of way huh. uh so the yeah.
2: unsung people behind the scenes
1: yeah exactly um so yeah he had a he had a credit in this uh also as i believe i'm trying to get to the to that where I specifically saw his name. It's not
2: Wrangler on this one.
1: No, uh, just Music Editor.
2: Music Shepherd. (laughs) I think that's everything for Wolfen. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year we can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound?
3: We got one!
2: That's right, it's a new patron, Michael wysaki As a $5 patron of the show, Michael now has access to 28 full-size 70s reviews and 34 minisodes from 1980 and a hand in choosing next month's film. For June of 1972, $5 patrons are choosing between the following 12 titles.
3: (laughs) 12! (laughs) I
2: could not narrow it down because these are all like well-known titles. So here we go. Ready? Ben, Phil Carlson's drama thriller sequel to 1971's Willard, which follows Willard's rat Ben to a new friendship with a lonely young boy named Danny Garrison. It features a theme song from Michael Jackson, which was covered by Crispin Glover in the 2003 Willard remake in which he starred. Beware the Blob, a.k.a. Son of Blob, (laughs) a direct sequel to the 1958 Blob, directed by Larry Hagman, taking place 15 years after the events of the first film. It features appearances by Garrett Graham, Dick Van Patten, Burgess Meredith, sid haig and del close boxcar bertha martin scorsese's romantic crime drama based on ben l reitman's novel sister of the road about bertha thompson who lives the hobo life in the wake of her father's death it stars barbara hershey and david Carradine. the candidate michael Ritchie's political dramedy about campaigning that went on to win the oscar for best original screenplay starring robert redford peter boyle and melvin douglas children shouldn't play with dead things a horror comedy from Black Christmas director Bob Clark about a theater troupe reenacting a satanic ritual with a real corpse. It was shot on a budget of $50,000 over two weeks and stars in the lead Alan Ormsby, who last season wrote the screenplays for My Bodyguard and The Little Dragons. Interesting. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Yes. The fourth film in the Planet of the Apes series, which explores the fate of Baby Milo from the previous film, though needlessly renamed Caesar. (laughs) <laughs> it stars Roddy McDowell as the son of his character from the previous film, Ricardo Montalban as the same character, and Severn Darden as the villain. Deep Throat, Gerard Damiano's golden era wait, pornographic wait film <laughs> about a woman born with a clitoris in her throat. It stars Linda Lovelace and Harry Reems, who we have seen so far as the pilot in To All a Good Night and as a doctor in our Demented Minisode.
3: Did this? Did that get a full? Yes, it did theatrical release. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, not every theater, but. It was a wide release. How wide? For sure. (laughs) Well, you'll have to see it to find out. (laughs) Frenzy, Alfred Hitchcock's thriller about a man falsely accused of the crimes of a serial strangler who kills women with a necktie. It stars John Finch, Alex McCowan, Barbara Lee Hunt, and Barry Foster. Get to Know Your Rabbit, Brian De Palma's comedy starring Tom Smothers as a man who quits his job to pursue magic. It stars John Astin, Catherine Ross, and Orson Welles as the magic teacher. That would be our fourth Brian De Palma film. Yeah. (laughs) Busy guy. Prime Cut, our second option this month from director Michael Ritchie. Prime Cut is a crime story about the clashings of a backwoods slaughterhouse owner and the Chicago Irish mob. It stars Lee Marvin, Gene Hackman, Sissy Spacek, and Angel Tompkins. Sounds awesome. Red Sun terrence young's spaghetti western about a gang who steal a ceremonial japanese sword intended as a gift for the u.s president if that (laughs) That sounds sounds familiar familiar. (laughs) it's because it's the exact same plot that was recycled last season into the bushido blade but this one stars tashira mifune oh wait they both do but this one also has charles bronson and ursula andras so it is slightly different (laughs) and our final option this month is shaft's big score the first sequel to Shaft, which we covered with a Patreon review, from the same writer-director team of Ernest Tidyman and Gordon Parks, respectively. It stars Richard Roundtree, Moses Gunn, Drew Bundini-Brown, and Joseph Mascalo, each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this June. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Under the Rainbow, which IMDb describes like so, a visiting dignitary, a CIA agent, a Nazi spy, Japanese tourists, an assassin and a group of midget actors from the wizard of oz all check into an elite los angeles hotel called under the rainbow we leave you now with a trailer for under the rainbow
0: what the hell's going on here guess what happened when 150 midgets checked into a hotel in hollywood to make one of the world's biggest movies i want a room what happened to that hotel and to Hollywood has to be seen to be believed. Now, the real madness can be shown. Give me my bucket! That's my favorite bucket! The cable! And believe you me, it's not short on action. It's not short on danger.
1: I could have held the elevator,
0: sir. And it's not short on romance. Bruce Thorpe, United States Secret Service. And I, uh, suppose that's your gun, huh? Oh, no, I wear a, uh, shoulder holster. It's not short on excitement either. All kinds of excitement. That's bad. And you better believe, it's not short on laughs.
3: I'm gonna miss you too.
0: No time for ping me perversion. See Ziggy. You will up the Or blow your brains out. If you haven't already guessed, it'll be out shortly. Chevy Chase, Carrie Fisher, and 150 of Hollywood's smallest stars in Under the Rainbow. A giant comedy. Coming from Orion Pictures.
1: What an interesting hotel.